Hello, and welcome to the Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Don Coldsmith, best-selling author of the Spanish Bit Saga, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm your host, Paul Bishop, and today I want to share with you what has recently become my obsession with writer Don Coldsmith and the long series of books in his well-known Spanish Bit Saga, as well as a number of his other powerful and engaging novels. First, I have to admit, while I've been aware of Coldsmith's Spanish bit saga for years, I never jumped into it as I mistakenly believed I had no interest in the Plains Indians of the 1500s who are the focus of the stories. However, earlier this year, I was at my local Friends of the Library used bookstore and ran across pristine original editions of the first two paperbacks in the Spanish bit saga, Trail of the Spanish Bit, and The Elk Dog Heritage. I have no doubt many of you listening go through the same routine when picking up a vintage paperback you might be unfamiliar with. Like me, you probably check out the front and back covers, then, very carefully if the paperback appears to be unread, take a look at the copyright page on the front of the book, as well as the list of prior books by the same author, either on the previous or following page. Next, you might read any introductory information if it's present, as in this case, and then maybe the first page of the story itself. Then you flip to the back of the book and look at the ads for other books in the same genre being advertised by the publisher, reading through whatever descriptions are provided, then read any afterword to the book itself, and then finally read the About the Author section, all of which goes into your Buy This Book or Return It to the Shelf decision. I admit, I picked up these two Coldsmith books because of what appeared to be their unread condition, unusual in paperbacks from the 80s. Then I went through the above ritual. When I read the About the Author section, I was surprised to learn Coldsmith grew up in the relatively small Kansas town of Emporia and lived much of his life there. I have been to Emporia and driven past it a number of times on visits to family in Lawrence, Kansas. As chance would have it, my wife and I were heading to Lawrence the following week. Coincidence? Maybe, but I've been known to start reading books for less whimsical reasons. Happy with my finds, I carried those two pristine paperbacks to the front counter paid my 50 cents apiece to the 100-year-old volunteer at the checkout counter, who took close to 10 minutes to ring the price up on the register, make change for my $5 bill, and salvage a bag, which I had said I didn't need, from under the counter. Now, many of you might think when I returned home, I would be eager to crack open those bad boys and start reading. But you would be wrong. What I did instead was what any self-respecting, anal-retentive paperback collector would do who was in possession of two unread, pristine vintage paperbacks. I put them in protective archival plastic bags, taped the flaps down, and ordered a used copy of each title online, hoping they would arrive before I left for Kansas. They did, and I was able to begin reading them on the plane as I started my journey to the heartland of America. And what did I discover? I quickly found out Don Coldsmith was one heck of a storyteller, and his Spanish bit saga was mandatory reading for any Western fan. Born in Iola, Kansas in 1926, Coldsmith was the son of a Methodist preacher and often enjoyed telling an anecdote about how he somehow managed to be baptized four times as a kid. Graduating from Coffeyville High School, he went on to serve as an Army combat medic in World War II in the Pacific Theater. His time there eventually led him to Japan, where he was among the first occupying troops. Assigned to provide medical care for Japanese war criminals, Coldsmith's patients also included the Japanese Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. When he returned to civilian life, Coldsmith matriculated at Baker University, a small Methodist institution in Baldwin City, Kansas, with a degree in psychology. 
After graduation, he worked as a YMCA youth director in Topeka for several years, where he helped to achieve the first interracial public swimming pool in the state. Like many authors, Cold Smith went on to hold a wide variety of stopgap jobs, including operating a mail-order gunsmith business, working as a taxidermist, singing in a men's quartet, selling bait in, of all things, a bait shop. He also spent a year as a clergyman and periodically taught English classes at Emporia State University. During this time, Coldsmith married his second wife, Edna, with whom he would have five daughters. He also returned to academia, earning his medical degree in 1958 from the University of Kansas. He would go on to practice medicine in Emporia, Kansas for 30 years. In the midst of all this activity, which also included running a cattle ranch and breeding Andalusian horses, Coldsmith managed to write numerous articles for magazines and uncountable newspaper columns, dribbling his prose on the back of scratch paper in whatever snippets of time he could find. Using this same method, he also wrote his first novel, Trail of the Spanish Bit, set in the 1500s. The conceit of the series centers around the introduction of the horse to the Plains Indians by Spanish explorers and the resulting effect on the Native American tribes of North America. Published in 1980, the book inaugurated a multi-generational saga covering more than a century of Western history. During the next eight years, 12 more Spanish-bit saga books were published. Coldsmith disdained using a typewriter. When asked what kind of word processor he used, Coldsmith simply pulled a pen from his pocket and held it up for display. His process was to handwrite his manuscripts, then have them typed by his wife or one of their daughters, before sending the finished product on to his publisher. In 1988, Coldsmith closed his medical practice to become a full-time writer. Sixteen more books in his Spanish Bit Saga, for a total of 29, followed, plus three more super-edition Spanish Bit Saga books, which I'll talk about in a minute. These not only made his name famous around the world, but also turned him into a local celebrity. Having worked so long as a family practitioner in Emporia, people from all over Kansas would approach him at book signings to tell him he had been the physician who delivered them, their siblings, or even their own children. Or perhaps he had removed their appendix, tonsils, or performed some other minor surgeries for which they were grateful. It would have been impossible for him to remember them all, but he handled these situations with the well-practiced bedside manner for which he was known. But there was another constant at his book signings. Cheyenne, Comanche, Shawnee, Choctaw, Cherokee, Apache, and others of Native American background came to thank him for his portrayal of Native Americans as people of substance and emotion, not the cardboard cutout caricatures portrayed by Hollywood or on television. Coldsmith was also lauded for the extensive historical research he indulged in to make his books as accurate as possible. The side benefit of these labors led him to become a popular and well-received lecturer on the subject of the West and its history. He would also often point out emphatically, In my stories, you find the women do more than scream, faint, and throw up. Coldsmith also wrote numerous standalone books outside of his Spanish bit saga, each one sharing the same compulsive readability, literary vision, and love for the early history of the Plains Indians. The narratives are solid entertainment free of bad language, lewd sexual content, and overly grisly violence. It's not surprising the books in the Spanish Bit Saga are often classified as westerns, but in reality they have little in common with the genre fiction of the traditional cowboy era of the late 1800s. Instead, Coldsmith saw the books as historical fiction, exploring the rise of the horse culture among the Plains Indians several centuries earlier in the 1500s. 
This makes the book somewhat unique in that very little has been written about the Spanish traveling north from the South and Central America during this time period, despite evidence of them making their way into the Plains area of North America. Colesmith's inspiration for the series came in an antique store in Oklahoma when he discovered a well-preserved 16th-century Spanish metal bit, an apparatus for fitting into a horse's mouth and attaching to a set of reins. This immediately sparked Colesmith's imagination. In his introduction to Trail of the Spanish Bit, Colesmith explains, It is known that the Spanish, under Coronado, penetrated the American continent as far north as the Central Plains in 1542. History records little other contact in this area. However, puzzling discrepancies are discovered. A fragment of rusty chainmail armor turns up in an archaeological dig in central Kansas. Pieces of Spanish-style horse equipment are found along the old Kansas Buffalo Trail. Words in the languages of the Plains Indian tribes are found to have the same sounds and meanings as in Spanish. Among some tribes, heavy facial hair was regarded as an indication of royal blood. One noted chief of a century ago was proud of his full mustache. All these isolated items are inconsistent. They are clearly out of place in time and location. Their occurrence makes no sense at all, unless we concede that there may have been more contact than history records. The findings are too frequent and too definitive to be a logical outgrowth of such chance contact and encounters. I found the Spanish bit in a barrel of junk in northern Oklahoma. The sign said, your choice, a dollar. Most of the stuff in the barrel was pretty worthless. Rusty cinch rings, old whiffle tree fittings, and things that hang on rails in your old barn. But there was the bit, a ring bit of Spanish pattern, apparently very old. I bought it and took it home to ponder. It was nearly identical to the one I had seen in a museum in Santa Fe showing the equipment of Coronado's expedition. How, then, did my bit find its way into a barrel of junk in Oklahoma, and who took care of it for all the intervening years? It was in good condition and had apparently been protected from the elements. Several possibilities occurred to me. Perhaps its owner was killed or his horse killed or captured, the equipment to be plundered by Indians. One possibility continued to intrigue me. A few Spaniards were known to have been captured by the Indians along the Gulf Coast and later adopted into the tribes. Suppose that this could have happened on the plains. He probably would have been an officer because most enlisted men traveled on foot. Being a professional military man, he would have had a great deal of respect for his equipment and given it the best care. As he married into the tribe, his children would have extreme respect for the equipment. In a generation or two, the original use might even be forgotten, but the reverence for the object so honored by one's ancestors would remain. Family tradition would require continued respect and care. In the final analysis, we have to say it's all speculation, but no matter how we daydream, our wildest fantasies would probably pale to insignificance beside the real story that could be told if the Spanish bit could talk. Coldsmith doesn't specify the date in Trail of the Spanish Bit, nor does he identify Coronado by name, but the protagonist of the first novel, Juan Garcia, is assumed to be a soldier in Coronado's expedition of 1540. Separated from his group during an excursion to search for the seven cities of gold, Garcia's horse is startled by a snake. The horse's violent movement throws Garcia from the saddle, causing him to hit his head on an exposed rock. Saved by his armored helmet, Garcia survives but is badly concussed. Unaware he is being observed by indigenous natives, Garcia removes his helmet, 
astonishing the watchers who had never seen a man in armor before, leading them to dub him with the name Heads Off. The watchers are part of a plains tribe who call themselves the people. Colesmith's concept of the people, he deliberately avoids the term Indians, appears to be a synthesis of several different indigenous tribes and cultural traditions, including the Kanza, Lakota, Kiowa, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Blackfeet, and others. The Pawnee are often depicted as the enemy, who Coltsmith refers to as the headsplitters. Forced to follow the tribe in order to survive, Garcia constantly lays plans to return to his comrades. But complications inevitably ensue, such as finding out his horse is pregnant, delaying his departure again and again. Before long, Garcia is assimilated into the tribe and becomes a committed and integral part of their future. Coldsmith paints a picture of how buffalo were first hunted and how travel was on foot, with belongings being placed on travois, which were dragged by dogs. Never having seen a horse such as Garcia's before, the tribe initially assumed it was a strange type of dog. However, since it was as big as a moose, they referred to it as an elk dog. The horse made traveling far easier, hunting more plentiful, and battle against the hated headsplitters much more successful. But the story concerns more than just the wonder created by the horse. Cross-cultural acceptance, friendship, and cooperation form the overarching theme in the novel, although it is the proud Juan Garcia who initially must do most of the adapting as he absorbs and comes to understand the people's way of life. However, in the long run, it is the people who are eventually changed the most. As Garcia teaches them the ways of the elk dog, this indelibly changes their lives, the lives of their ancestors and their culture. The plotting and the pacing of the story is unfailingly eventful and interesting. Tribal warfare provides an action-adventure element that mixes well with the relationship building and cultural exploration. Coldsmith's Native American heroes and heroines are unpretentious, relatable human beings whom you can imagine befriending. At the same time, his villains, who are most often also Indians, are given believable motives rather than simply being evil to fit the needs of the story. There is some social commentary, even some religious speculation, but Coldsmith does a good job balancing his portrayal of opposing Native American and immigrant cultures. However, he's not above delivering the occasional scathing criticism of European-American culture, especially in matters of the spirit. Distinctly articulate and misleadingly uncomplicated, Coldsmith's prose does not distract the reader from the story itself. His characters, who may seem unsophisticated at first, gradually emerge as well-rounded human beings with complex and often conflicting motives and emotions, all of which occurs because of Coldsmith's gifted ability to express a full gamut of human emotions on the page. Even secondary characters come alive as the reader gets both a personal and panoramic perspective on the events, gaining an understanding of the individual motives and drawing out an empathetic response. Coldsmith makes it impossible not to care about his characters. The reader is swept up, becoming truly assimilated into the tribe. The downside to this is when tragedy strikes, which it inevitably does, the pain, fear, and horror of the sudden violence cuts through you like an enemy war spear. Coldsmith's clarity of prose also extends to the events he describes. The reader experiences on a visceral level the tumult of life and death dangers, as if living it themselves. While Coldsmith often revisits themes from previous books in the saga, his ability with characters and events combine in many different ways, giving rise to new elements and perspectives to make the current storyline appear bright and original. 
due to the request of his editor at Bantam, Cole Smith expanded his Spanish bit storyline into three basically standalone super editions, featuring specific characters who readers repeatedly ask questions about. The first super edition, The Changing Wind, is set between books 15 and 16 in the saga. The Traveler, the second super edition, fits between books 17 and 18. And the final super edition, World of Silence, fills the gap between books 19 and 20. The final book in the Spanish bit saga, Moon of Madness, was delayed due to an argument between Coldsmith and his publisher over some of the content. Coldsmith died before this was resolved, but the book was eventually published posthumously. I should also spare a moment at this point to talk about the covers of the books in the Spanish Bit Saga. Artist Tom Hall was commissioned to do the majority of them. With his ability to capture the mood of the stories and the features of the characters, the images are captivating. Combining his choice of colors with his research into ceremonial regalia and everyday clothing styles, and his depiction of the Native American artifacts displayed in the background, Hall relates each of the covers to the specific individual stories. I doubt there could have been a better combination of artist and subject. Of Coldsmith's other standalone novels, three stand out for me. The first, simply because it is a bit of an anomaly in Coldsmith's canon. In 1997, Bantam began publishing the historical fiction series Rivers West, which would eventually run to 20 novels. These were paperback originals written by numerous authors, including four by Will Blevins, four by Jory Sherman, two by Frederick Bean, seven by Gary McCarthy, and one each by Richard Wheeler, Frank Roderis, and Don Coldsmith, all names well-known to Western readers. Coldsmith's entry was the second book in the series, The Smoky Hill, and marked the only time Coldsmith would write for a collective-style series originating with the publisher. Coldsmith's easy style is present as he tells the tale of the Smoky Hill River as it runs through the rolling grasslands of Kansas. The river is a rich source of opportunity for those bold enough to risk the dream-killing territory. For Gabe, mountain man and scout, the river means freedom and a chance to map unexplored territory with the great pathfinder John Charles Fremont. For Lem, an Illinois farm boy in pursuit of gold, it is a cruel foe who robs him of his family and his youth. For Jesse, a young Union corporal, this is a country that took his father and uncle and where he must fight warring Indians. The second standalone I want to mention is The Long Journey Home, which grew out of a conversation Coldsmith had with his editor at Bantam, who asked him to write a biography of Jim Thorpe. Coldsmith thought long and hard about the idea, but eventually found he was not comfortable with the proposed project. Instead, he felt he could do the subject more justice by writing a Ramona Clef in which a Native American track star training for the Olympics in the early part of the 1900s meets and interacts with the 1912 Olympic gold medal winner Jim Thorpe as well as Bill Pickett, the black cowboy who invented steer wrestling, and others. John Buffalo, a Lakota Sioux, is taken from his family and his home as a young boy and forced into the white man's world. However, Buffalo's teachers soon recognize his extraordinary athletic potential and push him to train for track and field events. Accepting this as a way to integrate into the white man's world, Buffalo sets his sights on competing in the Olympics. Along the way, Buffalo meets a variety of early 20th century celebrities, including Theodore Roosevelt, James Naismith, Tim McCoy, and even Jesse Owens, the African-American gold medal winner snubbed by Hitler in the 1936 Olympics. Coldsmith's sketches of Wild West shows, early Hollywood, and the flu epidemic of 1918 are excellent and compelling. 
The Long Journey Home is beautifully written historical fiction, sometimes heart-wrenching, sometimes hilarious, and always poignantly accurate. It is a heartfelt story about love, self, and the reality of home. My favorite Cold Smith novel, however, is unquestionably Runestone, a grand historical adventure pitting distinct warrior cultures against one another. The book begins with two swift-moving longships setting sail from Norway with their hand-picked crews. They are following the route navigated by the legendary Leif Erikson, intending to push even further than that intrepid explorer. For young shipmaster Niles Thorson and his fellow Norsemen, however, the real journey begins when they find themselves on the uncharted continent of Vineland. The explorers revel in the chance to penetrate a virgin land, assured of their Viking superiority, until they trespass on the grounds of a primitive people who have seen enough of the light hair's cruelty to believe that they are too dangerous to ignore. In one swift dawn raid, they deal with the invaders by letting go a swarm of fiery arrows. Only three men from the sailing party escape, the intrepid Niles Thorson, the hardened seaman Svensson, and an enigmatic native guide called Odin. Finding themselves stranded in the wilderness with their one-eyed guide, Thorson and Svensson realize that to survive, they must master the ways of war, of the hunt, and of a proud and fearless people who they sorely underestimated. A past president of the Western Writers of America from 1983 to 1984, Cole Smith was the recipient of the organization's Spur Award for his novel Changing Wind, the first of the Spanish Bit Saga Super Editions. He was also a Spur finalist on six other occasions. In 2003, he also received the organization's own Worcester Award for Lifetime Achievement in Western History and Literature. But Cole Smith was much more than an author. He was a mentor to many fledgling writers. He founded the Tall Grass Writing Workshop in 1986 to bring aspiring writers together with experienced writers, editors, and agents. He was always present, giving advice, showing the way, and providing opportunities for writers to develop and publish. Cold Smith died on June 25, 2009, after suffering a stroke five days earlier after attending the Western Writers of America Conference in Oklahoma City. Jim Hoy, a fellow writer, lecturer, and teacher at Emporia State University, said Coldsmith had a talent for connecting with his readers, even when writing about unfamiliar cultures. Kansas Poet Laureate Denise Lowe affirmed the significance of Coldsmith's work as important to Kansans and Midwesterners because he really showed the sweep of geography from Colorado Springs and the Rockies down into northern Oklahoma. So you really get a sense of this region, and there's not much literature in the country or the world based on that geographic region. Coldsmith himself stated, My goal has always been that I would write historically accurate enough that nobody can prove it didn't happen. I don't claim that it did happen. I claim that it could have happened, and I defy anybody to prove it didn't. I think it's intellectually dishonest to distort history, and so I'm just not going to do it. Through his writing, Don Coldsmith became a living legend writing about living legends. But most importantly, Coldsmith was a man who loved and respected his wife and his daughters and strove to make a daily difference in the lives of those with whom he interacted, much like many of his fictional characters. I cannot recommend his work highly enough. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep reading. 
Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.